those of you who are guests, and there's a number of guests in the room this morning, uh, some coming back from many years ago, I understand. So it's nice to have guests in the room, family supporting the majors, newcomers to our church. Let me give you a little orientation for what you just walked into. We're on the last Sunday of a series called Mountaintop Moments. We have been going through sort of a survey of the Old Testament and stopping off at key mountaintops along the way to help us have a better understanding of what can sometimes be a hard section of the Bible, this Old Testament. And so we have stopped off at Mount Moriah, Mount Sinai, Mount Nebo, Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, Mount Tabor, Mount Zion, and today we come to Mount Carmel. We have a little map that shows all the different mountains that we've looked at together as a church. This gives you just a little bit of orientation of a map of the Middle East. Mount Sinai is at the very bottom down there, if that's where Mount Sinai is. And then we have uh, the other mountains up there in Israel. Today we're at Mount Carmel. As you can see, it's located just right there next to the Mediterranean Sea, which is relevant to the story that we're going to talk about from this mountaintop moment. We actually have a picture of what it looks like in Israel today at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is a little bit different than some of the other mountains we have looked at in that it is this this long Uh, mountain range of sorts. And so at the widest spot, it's five miles wide, it's 20 miles long. And so when you talk to people today, or you look back through history, and you talk about Mount Carmel, it can be difficult to know, well, where? There's not like a peak, right? Like this is the peak of Mount Carmel. So it's, it's sometimes hard to know. And so it's hard to know where today's moment specifically happened, but it did happen at Mount Carmel which stands about 1,791 feet above sea level, although at varying points wherever you are on the ridge. And so what we're going to see at Mount Carmel is Mount Carmel is where God turns hearts. Mount Carmel is where God turns hearts. Hopefully you've had a heart-turning moment atop a mountain. Not necessarily literally, but that would be wonderful. But more figuratively or spiritually, right? These mountaintop moments. I don't know what it could have been for you in your past. Maybe it was a church service or a camp when you were a young child, or maybe it was um, some conference you went to, or maybe it was just a moment of solitude, or maybe it was a moment where it wasn't quiet at all, and you took a significant step of faith that was scary, but in these moments, God meets us, right? He speaks to us in a special way that marks in our memory as we look back on our lives. This is what we mean when we say mountaintop moments. These moments when it feels like God is speaking to us and oftentimes calling us to turn, make a turn. Maybe it's away from sin and to obedience. Maybe it doesn't feel like it's a turn from sin. Maybe it feels more like just a turn from laziness or a turn from just not caring to a turn too low, I'm going to care, I'm going to invest, and I'm going to follow God in this way. This is what we mean by mountaintop moments. God can speak to us from a mountaintop and from a valley all the same. But hopefully we think back and we have these moments in our lives where we felt and sensed God's presence in special ways. Now sometimes we think, oh yeah, I've got that. That happened that one time back then, and that's sort of when I became a Christian. And that's great if you have that memory. But as I look back on my life, I don't, I think that there should be more than that. If a mountaintop moment, as we understand it this morning, is simply a moment in which God turns our hearts to himself, I think we should have a lot more of those moments. I don't know about you, but my heart is pretty fickle. So it is regularly attaching itself to things that it should not attach itself to. 
And there are regularly moments in my life where God gets my attention and turns my heart away from that thing and back to himself. Whether that's a top mountaintop or a valley isn't the point right now. It's just we should all be able to see that there are these moments in our lives, not just one in our distant past, but hopefully regularly throughout our weeks and months where God is turning our hearts back to him. And not in an epic way necessarily like we're going to read about today, but some Sometimes we think they only happen once and they should happen a lot as you look back at the, sort of the, the map of terrain of your life. So Mount Carmel is where God turns hearts. Let's see how that happens thousands of years ago at Mount Carmel. So our story is in 1 Kings chapter 18. You're welcome to turn there in your Bibles. We're also going to put it on the screens. In 1 Kings, we are looking at the reign of the kings of Israel. Last week, to give you some context, we were at Mount um, Zion which is Jerusalem, built upon a mountain, Mount Zion. And that was built under the reign of King Solomon. King Solomon was the last king of Israel in which there was a unified kingdom. After King Solomon leaves the throne, they basically, the nation of Israel has a civil war. And it separates between the north and the south. And that sounds a little bit familiar to American history. But they separate between the north and the south. The north is referred to as Israel and the south is referred to as Judah. Judah in the south has access to the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Israel in the north, its border blocks it from the temple in Jerusalem. And so what happens, as you read through the accounts of the kings, the kings of that southern kingdom of Judah, you've got some good kings. You've got some kings that actually honor God and the things that they did. But when you read through the list of the kings of the northern kingdom, there are no good kings. All of them do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so our story takes place in the northern part of this kingdom. And I'll introduce you to its king in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 33. It says this, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri became king, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if, as if that had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. When you die and we do your funeral, this is the worst possible thing you could read, right? This is this man's heritage. It doesn't get any worse than this. Like, he did wicked, more wicked than anyone who was before him, provoked God to anger more than any other king that reigned. King Ahab was a bad king, did evil. Now, the bad, his badness could be illustrated in a lot of different ways, but specifically it's related to his idolatry. He introduced God's people to Baal. And they couldn't access the temple in Jerusalem to the true and living God. And so what does he do? He's like, oh, I'll, I'll build a house of Baal in the north. And within the house of Baal, I'll build an idol to Baal. And then all these people can gather together and worship Baal. And if one god isn't enough, he also includes Asherah. So who are these false gods? If you read through the Bible, you see Baal's name come up a number of times. And throughout, you look back through antiquity, through ancient history, you'll see Baal described in different ways. He's described as the sun god, or the storm god, or the god of rain, wind, and fertility. He is the supreme male deity 
that was worshipped by the ancient Phoenicians and Canaanites. So then you've got Asherah. So Asherah is a goddess. And Asherah is the goddess of the moon. So you've got the male god of the sun and the female goddess of the moon. And Asherah also happens to be the goddess of fertility. So I'm not going to go into any detail, but as you study back through ancient history, when you bring together the god of fertility with the goddess of fertility, then what happens in the temple is illicitly sexual in nature, such so that if you and I were to walk into that temple full of temple prostitution, you and I would probably turn and walk away. So look, at, imagine how God feels when he looks down and he's like, these are my people. And I told you how to worship me in a temple on Mount Zion. And you have introduced Baal and Asherah and you have them gather in these temples full of temple prostitution with these illicit sexual acts. I am not happy, right? I'm not happy. And so God sends judgment. So in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, it says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So we're introduced here to Elijah. Elijah is one of the most famous prophets of Israel. His name will come up throughout the pages of Scripture. We'll even talk about him in the New Testament. And so Elijah appears on the scene and he goes before Ahab. God gives a message to Elijah that he should pass on to the king. And so he does. No more rain. Probably what God is doing here is he's saying, between the lines, Ahab, you want people to worship Baal. And you believe that Baal is the god of rain. All right, then let's see whether this works. It's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. You can worship Baal as much as you want, and you see if you can make it rain. Because the next time it rains will be when I say it rains. So let's see when that happens. 1 Kings chapter uh, uh, 18, verses 17. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I skipped one. 18, verse 1. And after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, and now the famine was severe in Samaria. Three years. Three years went without rain. Three years they gather at Baal's temple, the house of Baal, before the idol of Baal. And they're calling on Baal, the god of rain, to send rain and nothing happens. So much so that King Ahab's country is spiraling through a three-year drought. And so when God tells Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, this would have certainly provoked an appropriate level of fear in Elijah. Because... Ahab hates Elijah. Jezebel hates Elijah. He is the troublemaker. He is the one who has caused a drought in their land. He is the one who has caused their land to spiral in a, in a downward direction. And so the last person that Elijah wants to go and present himself to is the people who hate him, who happen to be the most powerful people in the land. But he goes. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17, it describes their conversation. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So you read this section and you should ask the question, Who's troubling who here? Right? So there's Ahab. Here comes Elijah. You're the problem, Elijah. You're the problem. And Elijah flips it on him real quick and says, Oh, hold on a second. I'm not the one 
who led God's people away from God and towards the, this evil worship of a false god in temples that you built. I'm not the trouble of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel as you have led God's people to a false god. We've all seen this play out in our lives. This is so easy to illustrate. Parenting. Okay, kids, I know you want to get on the screens. You can get on your screens when you do your homework. Okay, cool. A few hours go by. I want to go on my screens. Oh, did you do your homework? No. Well, then you can't go on screens. Why are you ruining my life? You're ruining my life. Why? I'm not ruining your life. You, you made your choices. You made choices. I'm not the trouble. Your choices created this trouble. You chose to follow a different path. I imagine in my household in a few years, we'll move on from that scenario to a scenario like this. Sure, you can go out, and here's your curfew. Do you understand what happens if you, don't, if you come back after your curfew? Yes, I understand. Okay, then go out and have fun. They come back after their curfew. All right, you're out in after your curfew, so we agreed to this situation. So it's easy to illustrate. It's easy to chuckle over those illustrations. But lest you leave here chuckling and not feeling personally convicted, let me give you some other illustrations. God, why are you plaguing me with this debt? Could God possibly respond to you and say, why aren't you following my way? Why did you leave my way and start worshiping the God of money? You say like, oh God, why is there so much tension between me and my spouse? Could God not respond and say, perhaps, why did you leave my way and start worshiping the God of your own selfishness? You say, oh God, please, please, I'm so lonely. Why are you troubling me with all of this loneliness? Could God possibly respond and say, why did you leave my way and pursue a way that is marked by isolation and individualism? I know life gets complex. I'm not saying those are the answers. I'm just saying sometimes when our gut orientation is to point fingers at someone else or point fingers at God, it's probably an appropriate time to pause and first ask ourselves some questions. Have I been true to God's way? And is some of this the natural consequences of choices that I have made? We all like to point the finger and say, oh, you're troubling me. It's just good introspective questions to ask ourselves so we don't play out like Ahab does here in this story. But that's how Ahab chooses to play it. And then Elijah responds. Elijah continues to speak. And Elijah says, Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah is setting up this showdown. He's going to set up the showdown between the gods of Baal and the true and living God. He gathers the nation of Israel together so they can witness it. And once they've gathered, before the whole show starts, Elijah says, Okay, here's the deal. You've got the God of Israel and you have Baal. You need to pick a side. Pick one. Freedom of choice here. 
pick which side you want to be on. And the people didn't answer him a word. This is, this is hard to miss this point, but I'll, I'll share it for you in case you're missing it. Each and every day, God is calling to me, you to make the exact same choice. Every day, we should probably say to the Lord, or we should hear this from the Lord, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if fill in the blank, then follow him. How long will I keep limping between two different opinions and just pick a path to go down? How do we discern that? Well, we ask ourselves some questions sometimes. So you can ask yourself the question, who gives me my identity? Does God give me my identity or do my feelings give me my identity? So if God gives me my identity, then, then I look and I see that I am created by God, created in his image, loved and treasured and valued creation of God. But I also see in scripture that my identity is also that I am broken. I am significantly broken by sin and I need forgiveness. I need a savior. And so I see that Jesus Christ came, paid for my sin, set me free from the slavery of sin, adopted me into his family. And my identity is now as a child of God. That's my identity. Is that how we choose to identify or do we identify by our feelings? Who gives you your identity? God or your political party? Who gives you your identity? God or your friends? Who gives you your identity? God or the popular opinions of the day? How long will you limp between two differing opinions? If the Lord is God, then serve him. If this other thing, if the popular opinions of the day is your God, then serve those. But pick a side. Make a choice. Ask yourself this question. Who gives your life purpose? Who gives your life purpose? Is it your girlfriend or your boyfriend? Is it your spouse? Who gives your life purpose? Is it your children? Is it your career? Is it your wealth? Who gives your life purpose? The people didn't respond. Now maybe my examples there are too extreme. And just for clarity, let me explain. My wife gives my life purpose, and my children give my life purpose, and my career gives my life purpose. Think of it this way. This is a good way to try and determine where the idols are and where the health is. Think of it, your life is like a tree. One of the branches in my tree is my wife. It's a big branch in my tree because she brings so much purpose to my life. I got three other big branches in my tree. I got Violet and Henry and Rosie. And I have a career. And your life is like my life. Your tree is like my tree. There's big limbs and small limbs, and they all come together. And they're all beautiful, and that's how God intended it to be. I'm not asking where are your limbs. I'm asking you where are your roots. What gives you life's purpose? Where are you drawing your nourishment from, your strength from, and your health from? Because you should be drawing your purpose from God. God should be what you are rooted in. And listen, if you root your life into your children, if you look to your children for your nourishment and for your strength and for your stability and for your health, you will crush your children under the weight of expectations that they cannot bear and they cannot live up to. You can do that to whatever. You do it to your career, any other thing you filled in the blank there. That's how you spot the idolatry in your life. Listen, if we're rooted in God, though the winds and the storms of life come and go, we're not going to topple over because we're rooted in him. We're going to lose some limbs. And when the storms come, limbs are going to break off and we're going to grieve and it's going to hurt and we're going to have to heal and we will never be the same shape again. But we don't fall over. We're rooted and we're grounded in God. 
so that when the storms of life come and blow as they may and limbs may fall, we are rooted in God. He gives our life the deep sense of purpose. And so when I say make a choice, I'm not asking you to pick between limbs of your tree. I'm saying you've got to pick a choice of what you're going to root yourself in. Root yourself in Allah. Root yourself in Buddha. Root yourself in your own heart. Root yourself in God. The point is make a choice. Make a choice of what you're going to root yourself in and then go for it. That's what Elijah is saying to the people. Choose. Stop sitting on the fence. So then the story goes on. Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bowls be given to us and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. So the people of Israel have said, fine, we'll make our choice after this. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. So either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. What a scene. What a scene is being played out here. In this room right now, maybe there's 100, 120 people gathered in this room. We're talking about 450 people. So 450 people dancing, raving around an altar for hours on end, cutting themselves so the blood is flowing out on them. I don't know about you, but I've seen enough movies and TV shows to become a little bit familiar about what Hollywood tells me certain occult practices look like. And it really freaks me out. Listen, if you and I walk upon this scene, we turn and walk the other way. Like this is occultish, evil, scary stuff. You got 450 prophets cutting themselves, dancing around, crying on a false god. I turn and walk the other way. And so you have a choice here. I think God's saying like, you, like make a choice. You can, you can hang with those guys and they're like bloodbath dance that's accomplishing nothing or you can hang with God. So make a choice. Seems like pretty easy choice, but you compare the Baal to the God that we serve, just do a quick comparison. It says in there multiple times, there was no voice, no one answered, no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Compare that to the God of the Bible. Just open up the first page of your Bible, read the first chapter, and God said, then 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 God said. It's almost like we're trying to see like this book is about a God who speaks. And he speaks to Adam and Eve, and he speaks to Noah, and he speaks to Abraham, and he speaks to Moses, and I won't keep going. He speaks to the prophets. 
So that when you get to the book of Hebrews, towards the end of the book, it says this. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. Over 2,000 times in scripture, we're told that God speaks. Compare that to Baal. No one answered. We serve a God who speaks. Oftentimes, as we chat with one another, we'll talk about how God spoke to us. Oftentimes, majority of the times, we're not talking about an actual, like, audible voice, although certainly God can do anything. But God speaks to us through his word. We'll be reading it, and it'll feel like it's just speaking right to our hearts. God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit that we believe indwells us. And so somehow within us, there are movements of the Spirit. And we feel convictions and, and, and compelled in different ways through this mysterious Holy Spirit that's within us. The Lord can speak to us through a friend as the Holy Spirit speaks through them. He can speak to us through a song or through a service or through a mountaintop or through a sunset. But we serve a God who speaks to us in many different ways and many different times. The Baal does not do that. So we go on. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. See, the, the bail thing's over. It's Elijah's turn. Come on, come close. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood and he said fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood and he said do it a second time and they did it a second time and he said do it a third time and they did it a third time and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water God loves to do the impossible God is on the underdog team you got already 450 to 1 God's like yeah those are good odds but I need to make it more extreme. So let's dump four buckets of water on it. And let's do it again. And let's do it again. God is showing up in impossible situations. There's no way you can set fire to that altar. That would be impossible. But what God is showing us, whether it's with David and Goliath or any other number of stories in the Bible, maybe we should think of when Jesus was laid in a tomb dead. He likes to show up in impossible situations and reveal his glory. And that's what he's going to do here. You know, you can find those examples in God's word, but even if you look outside of God's word and you just zoom way out and you look at how Christianity has spread over the last 2,000 years, what you'll see just from a real broad brushstrokes is kind of cool. You'll see like in those first few centuries, Christianity spread like wildfire through a bunch of ragtag followers of Jesus, former fishermen that were undergoing persecution. Read through the New Testament, persecution as they're writing these books. But then watch what happens. The Roman Empire adopts this religion that seems to be very powerful, and they make it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And then what happens? Rome falls. Because what's interesting, Christianity flourishes not in positions of power. Christianity flourishes amongst the weak and the vulnerable and the persecuted. And so Christianity then will shift, and it will start to grow amongst the tribes of Europe, And you can study that, and then you get to the Protestant Reformation, and it seems to be surging. But look at Europe today. It seems like once Christianity reached to a certain level of power, it jumped across the pond. 
came to North America, and here we sit because of there's so much investment of Christianity here in our country. But have you noticed in the last few decades, it doesn't feel like it's growing here. Be very perceptive of you to spot that. But you know where we're perceiving it? In the Far East. And so for the last number of decades, we've been watching this underground church grow in China. And so now we think that there's certainly more Christians in China than there are in America. And the Christianity is growing the most right now in the continent of Africa. And you think, well, where it's the most impossible? Where could we just dump buckets and buckets and buckets on this world and think there's no way that Christianity could grow there? How about in Muslim nations? How about in the Middle East where there's Muslim control and persecution comes with faith in Christ? And it is out of those countries in recent years that we are hearing just fantastic stories of God, God doing a work drawing people to himself, opening blind eyes in ways that no one would have ever predicted. Because listen, God shows up in the midst of weakness, in the midst of persecution. He shows up and he does the impossible. That's how he prefers to work. So yes, American Christian, we are losing our power. Yes, if the statistics are true, we will be a minority religion within our country. And we can rage against the coming of the night. We can do that. But we can also have hope in the fact that amidst persecution, we will flourish. As they strip us of our positions of power in the midst of our weakness, we will realize the strength of God like we have never known before. God loves to show up in impossible situations. We need to finish the story. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. I think this is the most important verses. He simply says this. This is a prayer for us every day. You are God. I am your servant. I've done everything you told me to do. That's a good day for us. At the end of the day, you are God. I'm your servant. Today, I feel like at the best of my ability, I've done all you told me to do. Why? Why? Oh, oh, here's why. It says it right here. That the people may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Isn't that interesting? And we just got done saying that you got to make a choice. God doesn't want any fence sitters. But lest you get all self-righteous, before you get all puffed up and you're like, look at all the good choices I made. You know, back there, I was really sinful and I was making all the wrong choices. But I made better choices and I chose to follow God. And after I chose to follow God, then I chose to go here and do this. And after that, I chose here to go and do this. And then you know what you become? You become this self-righteous person that is so proud that nobody wants to be around you and nobody wants to listen to you and your self-righteousness about all the good choices you made in your life. The point of this passage isn't about a good choice that the people of Israel made. The point of this passage is that God turns people's hearts back to himself. God showed up on Mount Carmel because he looked down and he saw his people lost and confused with bad leadership. And he said, I want to draw their hearts back to me. And they're not going to look back and be proud of some choice they made in their past. They're going to look back and say, isn't it tremendous how God changed my heart? And that's how we should look back on our stories as well. Not with a series of great choices we made about cleaning up our lives, but look back and see that it was God who changed our hearts. He turned us to himself, and he gets all the glory. And then the fire falls. 
The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. God shows up and he consumes the offering, the stones, the dust from the stones, and the water. And then he slaughters the prophets of Baal. So God hates idolatry. It's probably a good takeaway to take from this passage. He hates idolatry. The Ten Commandments, the first two. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. Get to the last one, number ten. Don't covet. New Testament, Colossians 3. Covetousness is idolatry. God hates idolatry. God doesn't change. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. So God who doesn't change always hates idolatry. However, the God we serve works in different ways in different times. So as you read through the Bible, you're going to read about Elijah slaughtering the prophets of Baal. That's how God operated then. That is not how God is operating now. Now you and I live as his people for a whole host of reasons that I don't have time to go into. We operate a different way. We follow the teachings of Jesus, and he taught us to love our enemies and to do good to those who hurt us. So we follow a different way. It's the same God, but manifesting himself in a different way now with you and I as we follow the teachings of Jesus. After the slaughter of the prophets of Baal, the rain comes. As we look back and we wrap up this whole time together, this story, we're all different people coming from different walks of life. So I don't know what it is that the Holy Spirit needed to have your ears or your heart here this morning, but let's remind ourselves of some of the things we've heard. Idolatry is evil. It has plagued us for thousands and thousands of years. Covetousness is idolatry. God hates it. He wants us to try and spot it in our hearts. And where we can spot it, he wants us to turn from it. He is gracious and kind and patient. But he hates idolatry and he wants us to do that introspective work in our lives to spot it. Where is my heart attached to something? Where am I expecting this, my money, to give me something that I can only find in God himself? Maybe you needed to hear something about idolatry. Maybe you needed to hear, maybe you're a finger pointer. Maybe this morning you needed to hear like, hey, listen, I know you want to blame God. I know you want to blame that person, but can you just pause a minute and just see if maybe some of your choices might be how this is happening this way at this time? I don't know what it is you needed to hear this morning. Maybe you needed to hear that you need to make a choice. Maybe you're fence sitting in your life right now. Maybe you're sort of like trying to play on both sides. God doesn't want that. He wants you to pick a side and go with it. All roads do not lead to God. Jesus was very clear on that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So make a choice. If the Lord is God, then serve him. Maybe you needed to hear about this reminder that God does the impossible. Maybe there's an impossible situation in your life and you need that encouragement. Maybe you need to be reminded that God speaks and you need to leave here today eager to listen and perceive where he's showing up in your life. Whatever it was for you, one thing I'm confident of is that we all need to hear this. God turns hearts. God did all of this in this story to turn people's hearts. So if you need your heart turned, have you asked him to do it? Because as much as we can strive to turn our own hearts, it might be good for us to pause together right now and ask that God would turn our hearts because that's what he does. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you in this, with this heart, Lord. We pray that you would turn our hearts to you. You're the God who turns hearts. So I pray for each one here, Lord, those who might listen online. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be working and revealing to us maybe things that we're not even self-aware of, where our hearts have attached to things where they ought not to have. And Lord, we ask that you would reveal that to us and turn our hearts back to you. Whatever it is that comes to mind, Lord, we pray that you would turn our hearts. Give us the courage. Give us the strength. Do the impossible in our lives, Lord. We are eagerly listening and watching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Let me just pray this for you one more time before we go. Heavenly Father, I pray that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. In Jesus' name, amen.